Amen. Thanks, Molly. Good morning. Rest kids, you guys are dismissed to go up to your class. After they clear the aisles, uh, ushers, you guys can receive the morning's tithes and offerings. Man, there was nothing clunkier than us embracing our past. And there was a metaphor there. I've learned in the first couple years of being a resurrection, we made so many mistakes uh, in like production and mic quality. Like when we were at the Clay Center, that planetarium, every day it was like the wild, wild west. Like you'd come in and, and like you never knew what was gonna go wrong. And so I really learned to preach through mistakes and things. Um, but I thought about sort of the, the picture of, uh, it was my fault, I sent the wrong source text and I, the wrong document, I had a couple. Uh, I wanna read the Apostles' Creed just so you hear it, the one I intended uh, us to hear. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the Holy General Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We've redeemed that, and we move on to the sermon. <laughs> Last week, we considered the earth-shattering thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Jesus says. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and Pharisees are how everyday people understood and applied the law. How can they know the law and obey the law better than the experts of the law? How can we do more and be better than religious scholars and leaders? How may we ever enter the kingdom of God? Ultimately, as we considered last week, the only way to enter the kingdom of God is through the only one who is truly righteous, the fulfillment of the law himself, Jesus Christ. Our internal reality is what keeps us from God, and it cannot be fixed with external conformity. Our internal reality is what keeps us from God, and it cannot be fixed with mere external conformity. Our problem is our lack of righteousness, our fake righteousness, and our shallow righteousness. It's like treating a, a lethal disease with a Band-Aid. Jesus came to take our broken righteousness and give us his. Jesus is the righteousness of God revealed to the world apart from the law, the gracious gift of righteousness for all who believe and call on his name. In Jesus, God changes us from the inside out. New hearts give birth to new motives which lead to new actions. New hearts give birth to new motives, which lead to new actions. Then and only then are we able to live righteously 
in the way that Jesus means righteous. Then and only then are we able to live righteously in the everyday stuff of life. In our text today, Jesus, as the greatest teacher of wisdom, doesn't just show us, doesn't just teach us about righteousness. He shows us what he means when he says he's fulfilled and not abolished the law. As the truest and best prophet, he reveals the heart of God in the law, and he demonstrates how his righteousness is lived out in the kingdom of God. He takes a three-part formula. Here's what you've heard. Here's what I say. And here's how you live. And he applies that formula to six things they've heard to demonstrate how his teaching impacts everyday people in everyday life. The title of this sermon is Everyday Righteousness. And I pray this morning that the Lord may use it to make us more like him. I'll just go through the six you may have heard statements for the sermon this morning. The first, you've heard that you shouldn't murder. You've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. You've heard about these divorce certificates. You've heard about swearing falsely. You've heard that it's an eye for an eye. And you've heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This will be the largest chunk of the text by far in this series. We're covering a lot of ground so as to get a, a holistic picture of this everyday righteousness in our lives, understanding what Jesus means when he calls us to righteousness, not what the Pharisees mean when they called folks to righteousness. Let's jump into the first one, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and to be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. What is the formula again? Here's what you've heard. Here's what I say. Here's how to live. You guys have heard the sixth commandment, he tells his disciples. Don't murder. It's true and good. But some of your teachers have failed you. They've got you thinking that all God cares about is whether or not you kill somebody. Now, on some days, that standard may be hard to keep. But for most of us, we can make it a day, a month, and even a lifetime without actually murdering someone. But not murdering someone is like the lowest bar possible for the good and righteous life. Jesus says, here's what I say. Are you angry with your brother? Well, you're liable to judgment. Do you insult your brother? You're liable to court. Do you call your brother a fool? Maybe an insult or slander, depending on your brother, I guess. You're liable to hell. Right? The murderers are the only ones who get it twisted here. Sure, it's less heinous to insult someone than murder someone. But that action flows from an unrighteous heart, a heart that is not right with God, a heart that is rebelling against God, a heart that ultimately deserves judgment. Essentially, Jesus says, you guys have been giving yourselves participation trophies for not killing each other. Right? I want you to do more than just 
pat yourselves on the back because you've been able to not murder your brother or sister. I want you to embrace righteousness in your relationships with one another. Don't just not kill them. Don't be angry with them. Don't slander them. Don't call them names. So what? How do we live in light of this? Jesus gives a couple of examples. For the sake of time, we'll focus on one. About resolving conflict. You may remember the Beatitudes a couple of weeks ago. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what? Resolve conflict among you. Don't even pretend to worship God if you and your brother have something going on. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then bring your gift to the altar. You can't come to God with open hands if you're holding on to a grudge. Jesus says worship's not just about showing up. Worship's not just about going forward. Worship's not just about what you bring. Worship's about who you are. So if you come and bring your gifts to the altar in those forms of worship, God's not interested in just getting stuff from you. God's interested in who you really are. If you've got something against your brother or sister, go talk to them. Don't go talk about them. Don't pretend that it's righteous gossip and go to someone else thinking that they can somehow fix it. Go to that person. Get right with that person. Pursue a purity of heart. That's what God wants in worship. This morning, is there a conversation that you need to have? If you have an issue with a brother or sister in here, how can you read this text and not obey this text? Before we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, go grab your brother or sister and seek out an apology for what you may have done to them. Oh, I can hear your thoughts now. Someone may see me. This isn't the venue. I hope they see you, and I hope they learn from you. I pray it would not be uncommon as we're lining up for communion to someone to come over and, and tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, man, let's go over to the foyer and talk for a second. Man, I, I, I was frustrated with you, and I, I said this, I did this, and I need you to know that, that was wrong, and I apologize. Imagine how healthy our churches would be, how healthy this church would be. This is the one we're called to lead and be in. If that was the approach we took to one another, instead of passively sitting and watching a show together and hoping that no one actually takes time to wonder where my heart is. Oh, and you also may remember the seventh commandment leading to the next you've heard statement. You've heard that you should not commit adultery. You've heard it was said, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, Throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's not hard to see, even from these first two examples, the propensity of the religious leaders to try to sort of give the least common denominator, the path of least resistance, the easiest way I can package righteousness and market it to the masses to make them think they are, in fact, righteous. Now, more people commit adultery than murder, but in theory, it's not that difficult to avoid an extramarital uh, affair. It's difficult, but it's, it's different, right? Here's the line. 
And everything up to that line is permissible, and everything beyond that line is impermissible. Essentially, the, the religious teachers were really good at placing that line somewhere, and Jesus is absolutely disinterested in figuring out where that line exactly is, because Jesus is absolutely interested in the purity of your heart. Jesus doesn't want just husbands and wives to not cheat on each other just for the sake of getting along, although getting along is a great gift that comes with not cheating on each other. But God wants husbands and wives not to cheat on each other because God wants our hearts to be pure. Why? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, I say, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Now all the guys who felt really good about not making that one decision feel really bad about the thousands of decisions that they've actually made. I say the heart is the problem, not simply the action. But Jesus is teaching that the path to the heart may run straight through the eye. The pure in heart see God. Their eyes are on him and their joy is full in him. You have heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. I say if you look at a woman with lustful intent, then you've committed adultery in your heart. So what? How do we then live? We wage holy war on our sins. Jesus speaks dramatically to dramatic action. Cut your hand off, man. Pluck your eye out. He's not teaching a sort of self-maiming. He's teaching the things that are causing you to sin. You need to take active steps to remove them. You need to get rid of them. You need to do whatever it takes to guard your heart, for your life flows from it. When we confess our sins every week in worship, that's not a, a passive acceptance of our sin. It's making plain what would otherwise be hidden. It's a declaration of war. It's shining light on our sin over and over and over again so that we can see it and we can kill it and we can do it in the presence of God's people. The message to us this morning is clear. As disciples of Jesus, we must take action, even radical action, to protect our hearts. And we must encourage each other in that process because it's countercultural from the ways of the world to actively pursue a life of righteousness and holiness. And then when it comes to sacrificing things that would actually be helpful or good or that you love that cause you to sin, that's even more countercultural. Right, imagine the metaphor Jesus uses someone, no right hand. Where's your right hand? Oh, I cut it off because it caused me to sin. What? Why'd you do that? You need your hand. Yeah, but I need my heart more. So there might be good things in your life, things that aren't explicitly sort of condemned in Scripture, that you may need to change. You may need to get rid of. And we need each other understanding that and helping us in that process, not making us feel some type of way about it. Some type of way about it is the best theological way I can describe that. So an example, right? 
I don't want to look lustfully at other women. I don't. So if there's you know, a TV show that, that that's part of the show and that's where I'm struggling, then to me, I'm just not going to watch it. And I don't need someone over there in the family of God saying, he thinks he's better than me. I don't think I'm better than you. I think I'm weaker than you. <laughs> I'm not telling you what you got to do. I'm telling you what I got to do. I'm not telling you how to guard your heart. I'm telling you how I got to guard my heart. And I don't need you thinking I think I'm better or I think I'm worse. I need you coming alongside me saying, brother, I care about your heart. And I hope you care about my heart. And whatever it takes to fight this sin, I want you to know I'm in it with you. And you're not alone. I don't necessarily believe this morning that the fight today is harder than it was in the first century. But I do think we're fighting on more fronts than we were in the first century. And we have access to unlimited images and, and information on the internet. Right? The access that each of us have in our pockets or probably in our hands, and we're probably looking at it right now, is like bigger than the Library of Congress. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented in human history. And we know the propensity of our hearts to use those gifts. Some of them are good, others not so much, in bad and destructive ways. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the pervasiveness of pornography in our day. Some argue that the internet would not exist in its current form without pornography. Brings in more money than the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, the NHL combined. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough to just find a line, draw it there, and say anything up to that's fair game. That's the heart of a Pharisee. The heart of a Jesus follower says, what's it going to take to see God. What's it going to take to be faithful and not grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells in me? Now, there were some ways in the olden times that you could not commit adultery and still get a new wife. Leading me to my third, you've heard. You've heard about this certificate of divorce, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I'm not going to lie, I was most nervous about this part of the text because I'm only human just like you. Now, divorce was widespread in ancient times. Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24 includes some sanctions on the cultural practice of divorce that uphold the sanctity of marriage and protect women in a patriarchal culture. Now, rabbis disagreed greatly on how to interpret the passages in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There was one school of thought that was much looser, and there was one school of thought that was much stricter. The stricter school of thought believed that the scriptures taught that only on the grounds of some gross sexual immorality and deep betrayal would divorce be permissible. The other school of thought said, well, let's think about that word decency, right? Let's think about what exactly is impermissible in a marriage relationship. Some rabbis argued that a man may find his wife indecent for any number of reasons. Sadly, but True, these guys would argue, well, she gained weight. 
She burnt her husband's food. She spoke rudely. And all these things are indecent. All these things are grounds for divorce. They devised a popular way to circumvent the heart of God and oppress the women in their midst. They made some religious games that would justify what they want to be true. Oh, I'm really tired of this woman. She's not who, you know, my wife, my, my family and her family decided. And there's this other woman that I would much rather be with. And so I'm going to come up with some sort of excuse as to why I, I shouldn't be with her. I'm going to get my, my, my priest, my rabbi, whatever, to, to sign off on that. And then after I've done that, I'm going to be free to go marry whoever I want to marry. And hey, guess what? I'm a good Jew. I'm a religious person. I actually follow the law of God. Uh, it's a little different, but I watched a documentary uh, last week that sort of demonstrated this idea uh, on Amazon Prime. I think it's called the Iraqi Sex Trade. I think it's a BBC or some, some sort of uh, program. And it exposed these Shia clerics in Islam who would give these temporary marriage certificates. So you could go to a, uh, a seedy cleric's office in the middle of a bustling part of town and you could say, hey, I, I would like to marry um, this woman. I need a certificate of marriage for me and this particular woman. Uh, and they would call it a pleasure marriage. They would say, I need it for a day. I need it for a week. Uh, I need it for up to a month. And so he would draw up the certificate of marriage, right? Cleared by, the, by their faith. And then he would take this to this woman and he would present it to her. But one of the things they would not tell the women in most cases is that it was a temporary marriage. It was a pleasure marriage. And the testimonies that you hear of these women in a society where their existence is dependent on a man, culturally speaking, them it's good news, they come, they're showered with gifts and love. And then they wake up and their husbands are gone. And they try to find out what's happening and when they get to the bottom of it they discover that it was in fact just a pleasure marriage. They were, in fact, just a piece of property at the whims of an oppressive, sinful, lustful, and greedy man. The consequences in her life and in his life were devastating. Like the Shia clerics, the rabbis were making a mockery of not all, but many were making a mockery of marriage. Jesus says, you've heard about this certificate of divorce, Stop playing games. I say that divorce is impermissible except on these grounds of sexual immorality. So what? Stop gaming the system and start loving your wife. Their righteousness litigates divorce. Jesus says, my righteousness is about a healthy marriage. Stop playing games and start embracing covenant love. Now, there are more religious games. Verse 33, you've heard, you've heard about swearing falsely, right? Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's God's footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
You've heard about taking oaths and promising things in God's name. You've heard how your teachers play word games, almost like Simon says. I'll say this oath, but I didn't say it in God's name, so I don't have to keep it. Oh, I said this in God's name, so I'm going to keep it. You've heard about these games that are used to manipulate conversations and ultimately serve yourself. I say, no, God is God. You are you. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So what? Just tell the truth. And keep your word. Jesus is done with religious games. Verse 38, you've heard that it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, this original idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is uh, perhaps widely misunderstood. It's not teaching mere retribution. It's a principle intended to prevent inappropriate punishment, right? The idea is that the punishment should fit the crime. It prevents things like, oh, excuse me, sir, you jaywalked. That's going to be the firing squad. Like, what? Right? A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. The, the punishment should fit the crime. Jesus says, here's what I say. When someone wrongs you, don't figure out just how strong you need to counterpunch. Don't pull out the scale and try to figure out what you need to do to balance out that scale, to make things fair. What you need to do, let him punch you. And if he punches you again, he punches you again. And know that there is a righteous judge who sees, who knows, and who will render justice. The world loves leaders who punch back harder than they got punched. Apparently, the church does too. But God calls us to turn the other cheek and trust that the Lord will bring justice. So what? How do I live with an ethic like that? I don't return evil for evil. I, I don't seek personal revenge. I'm not always trying to make things right to satisfy my own desires. I trust God, the righteous judge. And I remember the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You've heard, the last you've heard, you've heard that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun, his son, rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now is a poignant moment, right? The rabbis at least quoted the scripture right in a couple of instances. Yeah, you shouldn't murder, right? You shouldn't commit adultery. But here, whatever's been passed down to the everyday religious people, it isn't even in the Bible. It isn't even true. It's a distortion of the text. It never says you can love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But the rabbis and the teachers did a really good job figuring out how to make it say that. Well, God hates evil. They're evil. I love God. I hate evil. I hate them. But I say, Jesus says, if you only love people who love you, how are you different than anyone else? I say, be like your father and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Think about who God is and what he does. He makes the sun rise this morning on this city of people who are just such a mixed bag of people. He makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. The wicked and the righteousness receive rain that waters their crops and feeds them. Every breath that we draw is a gift from Almighty God. Every breath that that person who is so far from God draws is a gift from the loving heart of God. He doesn't say, oh, that guy is a Muslim. I'm going to make sure he can't breathe anymore. He graciously and lavishly blesses all people in his common grace with his goodness. If you only love people who are like you, then how are you any different than the rest of the world? Don't even the Gentiles greet their brothers? The righteous life is a life of love. It's a life of love not confined to people that I like or that like me. The righteous life isn't finding ways to justify what I want to be true. The, just, the righteous life is submitting to what God says is true. Here we reach the height of the passage. The righteous life is an honest, peacemaking, purity-seeking, covenant-keeping, justice-yielding life of love. I'll say that again because it's important. The righteous life is an honest, peacemaking, purity-seeking, covenant-keeping, justice-yielding life of love. This is God's standard. Perfection! Essentially, this morning, Jesus says to us, hear me, trust me, and follow me. Uh, Nate, if you want to come on up as we work to a close. Jesus fulfills the law by perfectly understanding it. We spoke last week about how he wrote it. <laughs> he is God. He knows its intent. Jesus fulfills the law by understanding it and by perfectly teaching it. His motives are pure. He's not interested in manipulation and power plays and is making people submit to him. He's interested in revealing the heart of the creator for his creation. Jesus fulfills the law by perfectly understanding it, by perfectly teaching it, and perhaps most significantly to us this morning, by perfectly 
obeying it. The question at the end of last week was how in the world will we ever enter the kingdom of heaven? Verse 20 of chapter 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In our text today, Jesus has said, let me demonstrate to you the kind of righteousness that I'm about as an antithesis to the kind of righteousness that they're about. Right? They're about finding limits and just whatever goes underneath them is fine. They're about justifying their own desires. They're about making true whatever it is that they want to be true. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He'll also say, no one comes to the Father but through me. How do we get in the kingdom of heaven? We follow the perfect standard, but we can't follow it perfectly. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Without Jesus, this passage is absolutely crippling. It shows us a life we have no hope of living. It shows us a standard we have no hope of reaching. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the scriptures teach that on my own, I can't do that. Without Jesus, I can't do anything. But here's the beautiful truth that we have this morning. We're not without Jesus anymore. <laughs> because of him, with him, through him, and for him, I can stop looking for limits, loopholes, shortcuts, and silver bullets. I can see God's wisdom in his word. I can hear the heart of God in his word. I can see Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of God's righteousness in his word. And by faith, I can trust him. By faith, his righteousness can be credited to my account. On the cross, he took my limited, shallow, fake, selfish righteousness, and he gave me his, his pure, his holy, his just righteousness. So when the Father looks at me this morning, when the Father looks at you who are in Christ, he sees perfection, the perfection of his Son. And the Sermon on the Mount holds up the standard that we live into. That we're not just the people who don't murder. We're the people who love and make peace. We're not just the people who try to figure out how to divorce. We're people who make a covenant and keep a covenant because Jesus has made a covenant with us. We're not just people who try to figure out how to say what we gotta say and make sure we gotta do. We're people who say what we mean and we live with our word. We're people who don't get into punching matches with the rest of the world. We trust God who will render justice in his time. I can see God's wisdom. I can hear God's word. And I can pursue real 
righteousness. Because of Jesus, we can pursue and live an honest, peacemaking, purity-seeking, covenant-keeping, justice-yielding life of love. This morning as we come to the table, I go back to the beginning of our passage. If you're coming to the altar and you've got something against your brother, wait and go be reconciled to your brother. If that's you this morning, I trust that you will obey the word of God. I'm going to pray for us and then I'll join us and invite you in just a moment to God's table. Father, we have such a propensity to bend the rules to make them what we want them to be, to look for caveats and shortcuts and ways around, to justify our actions instead of submit to your word. Help us flee pharisaical righteousness and help us run to a Jesus righteousness. Help us put our whole lives on the table as a sacrifice to you and make us, God, the kind of people that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.